Let me invite you to return with me again this morning to our studies in the book of 1 Timothy. And once again, we will turn to chapter 6. Paul's first letter to Timothy, the young pastor in Ephesus. And we'll pick up today in chapter 6. And before we do that, let's pause now and ask the Lord for his help. So, Father, I pray that you will work today so that when we finish, uh, it will be true what we sang and what Martin Nystrom wrote. I want you more than gold or silver. Only you can satisfy. I pray that you would do that in us and for us. In Jesus' name, amen. I have to admit, I haven't studied the culture of ancient Ephesus where Timothy was pastoring. I haven't studied that culture exhaustively. But I'm fairly confident to assert this morning that I don't think they had the Trinity Broadcasting Network. You know TBN, the religious channel with the gold and purple chairs and the gold and purple hairs and the preachers and the show hosts with plenty of gold in their purple suit pockets, and who explain that you too can reap a financial harvest if you will sow your money like seed into their coffers. I think you know these people. Fortunately for the Ephesians, I don't think they had TBN in ancient Ephesus. However, 1 Timothy chapter 6 verses 3 through 5 does tell us that they had similar sorts of preachers slithering around those parts, men who peddled false doctrine, verse 3, and verse 5, who prostituted religion as a means of acquiring wealth. They've always been around, and this is what Paul's getting at when he speaks about false teachers in verse 5 who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. He's not talking about actual godliness, as his accusation of friction and depravity makes clear in the first part of verse 5, but rather he's denouncing those who uphold a form of godliness, men who suppose that religion, which the NASB footnote presents as an alternative translation, men who suppose that religion is a means of gain and who prostitute it for that purpose. And nor when Paul speaks of using religion as a means of gain, nor is he talking about faithful pastors who make a legitimate salary for legitimate work. He encourages that sort of gain back in chapter 5, verses 17 and 18. Rather, what Paul is preaching against here in verse 5 are what we would call today the prosperity preachers, men who use religion as a means of getting rich themselves and who teach other people that they too can become well-to-do if they'll just do their Christianity the right way, have faith in the right places, which often means, at least in our day, if they'll just donate to my ministry, all will be well with them. Men who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. We recognize this ugly silhouette in our American context, but men of similar ilk were apparently selling their snake oil 19 and a half centuries ago in the city of Ephesus. It's not a new thing. And Paul denounces them in no uncertain terms there in verse 5. And I join with him this morning in calling the prosperity teachers men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth. And I call on you not to give them a single dime 
and not to be sucked in even for a millisecond by their abominable doctrine and its glitzy presentation. You can wrap a can of slimy fishing bait in gold and purple tinfoil, but in the end, you still just have a bucket full of worms. And that's what the prosperity gospel is, and I warn you not to take the bait. It's not Christianity. Christianity, true Christianity, real union with the Son of God, Christianity, as the Bible gives it to us, teaches us, as we're about to hear Paul say, to be content and to be generous and to trust in God and not in our money. And so having denounced the prosperity preachers, Paul doesn't simply stop there. He goes on in verses 6 through 10, and then again in verses 17 through 19, he goes on to lay out for us the true Christian perspective regarding money and contentment and true riches. That's our theme today, money, contentment, and true riches. And we'll read it out in verses 6 through 10 And then also in verses 17 through 19, in between are some exhortations for Timothy regarding aspects of his own personal godliness and some words of praise from the lips of Paul for our God. And we'll return to those things, Lord willing, next Sunday. But today we'll focus on the two brief paragraphs that speak to the themes of money, contentment, and true riches, beginning in verse 6. But godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. For we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. If we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. And then verses 17 through 19, Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous, And ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. Now let's divide our thoughts this morning into two main headings. Just two, we'll think first of all about contentment and say a good deal about money along the way. And then secondly, we'll consider true riches. So contentment and true riches, and then some other thoughts and divisions beneath them. And we'll begin with looking at what this passage has to teach us, a great deal it has to teach us about contentment. And I want to point out to you four items under this first heading. So think with me initially about the definition of contentment. The definition of contentment. Did you notice Paul defines This word for us, he defines Christian contentment in verse 8. If we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. If we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. Now that sounds all well and good, doesn't it? It sounds like what we'd expect the apostle to say. It sounds perhaps like something our grandmothers would have taught us and maybe like something we want to pass along to our own grandchildren someday. If we have food and covering with these, we shall be content, little ones. It sounds nice, doesn't it? 
And we like nice sayings, don't we? We like to put them in needlework and hang them on our walls to remind us of the simple life and the old ways and the good things. But here's the thing. We don't always actually expect to live by the words penned in needlepoint on our walls or that our grandmothers spent hours stitching into cloth and into our memories, do we? It's quaint to think about being content with food and clothing and shelter. And thank God for our grandparents who learned to do it during the Depression, but, I mean, no one really expects to live that way today, do they? Well, this particular saying in verse 8 is not just woven into the blues and greens uh, and onto a nice piece of cream-colored cloth from the 1930s. This saying, if we have food and covering with these we shall be content, is written in black and white from the pen of a first-century apostle on the pages of the Holy Bible. Indeed, this may be the very place from which our grandparents got some of those old sayings about being content and doing without. And so it's not just quaint to say that we should be content with our basic food, clothing, and shelter. It's not just nostalgic. And it's certainly not cliche. This is a real, live expectation of Almighty God for our lives, for your life and for my life. This is God's definition of contentment for you. If we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. And I have to admit to you, that's very challenging for me. If I were writing these instructions, I would be tempted to include not only food and covering, but maybe a, a smartphone certain amount of time off, weather that's not so hot, at least a few items from Ikea, and enough sweet tea and Mountain Dew to keep me happy, right? And you'd probably wish to make some additions to Paul's list too. Things that don't seem extravagant, things that don't seem, seem exorbitant, but that actually feel to you like they're part of the necessities of your life. Maybe internet, maybe TV, maybe a certain kind of apparel, whatever it may be. In other words... While we may fancy ourselves as being really content, and perhaps many of us are relatively content in comparison with our culture at large, but while we fancy ourselves as being really quite content, it's worth asking how we would have responded this week if we'd have had nothing to amuse us, nothing to entertain us, nothing to call our own but a few basic pieces of clothing, enough food to make us healthy, and a basic roof over our heads, and God. It's worth noticing, in other words, that much of what we consider to be the necessities and that we complain about when we don't have them are not actually necessities at all. Our internet went out for a few hours on Friday night, and it bothered me. Something inside me was antsy about it, even though I didn't really need to be online. Why are we like that? Well, we're not really as content as the Bible says we should be. Do you see what I'm getting at? I'm not trying to lambast you, believe me. I see myself in the grip of this problem just as much as anybody else. And when I read in verse 8 how Paul defines contentment, I find myself absolutely challenged. And I think we all should be. If we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. Now, that's not to say that we shouldn't have other things or that it's wrong to have other things or that we should rid ourselves of most of our possessions and live the most bare bones of lifestyles. Paul is not saying that here. He's not speaking about what we have. He's speaking about what we should be content to have. And for him, it wasn't just hypothetical. 
Paul wasn't just saying, hmm, I wonder if I would be content if I lived in a time and place where I really only had food and clothing and shelter. Paul, like some of our grandparents and great-grandparents, knew what it was, according to Philippians 4, to get along with humble means. And he wanted to be content with just the basics. And he wanted the Christians in Ephesus to be content with just the basics. And God wants you and God wants me to be content in the way that he describes here in verse 8. And to seek his help to begin to bend our lives to the shape of this verse. If we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. And so it's worth thinking now and again, would I be It's worth noticing how irritable we can be when we don't have little things that aren't included in verse 8, but we think are necessities. Here's the biblical definition of contentment. If we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. But now how do we get there? Well, let me next point out to you, still under this main heading of contentment, let me point out in the second place some motives for contentment. Some motives, and there are at least three of them in this passage. The first is that in our modern vernacular, you can't take it with you. You can't take it with you. Verse 7, for we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. That's another one that our grandmother said to us, isn't it? And we don't always act like we believe that one either. And our grandmothers didn't make it up. It's right here in the Bible. We have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. You didn't bring any of your gadgets or your food addictions or your home decor with you when God placed you in your mother's womb. And you won't be able to take any of it with you when you go, will you? We all know that. All the treasures that were laid in the Pharaoh's tombs so as to provide them with stores for the next life are either still there or they've long since been carried away by archaeologists or thieves. And so it is with all of your stuff. A day is coming when you will be parted from it forever. And I say to you, that's a motive for separating your heart from it now. For holding your possessions with a very loose grip. It just only makes sense, Paul says, not to think that I cannot live without this thing. Because this thing very soon is something that you'll have to live without forever. And here's one motive for pursuing contentment. Why do we hold on so tightly to things that we cannot take with us? But then we should also cultivate contentment because... The alternative will lead us into many sorrows. Here's a motive as well, verses 9 and 10. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Griefs. Now, notice Paul doesn't say what you may have sometimes heard said by those who misquote this verse. Paul doesn't say that money is the root or a root of all sorts of evil. He says that the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. Money itself is given by God. Money can be a blessing and not a curse, especially if we use it in the ways Paul instructs in verses 18 and 19. 
So the problem is not money. The problem is the love of money and the craving for riches, verse 9, that can bring all sorts of havoc into our lives. Indeed, did you hear how many negative words Paul piles up in just two verses as explaining to us the rotten fruit of the love of money? Look at it. Temptation, a snare, other sorts of foolish and harmful desires, ruin, destruction, apostasy, verse 10, and many griefs. We couldn't have a stronger warning, could we? The desire to be wealthy, the love of money, lends itself to all sorts of other sins and other snares which take us down paths of great sorrow and grief. Think about the casino gambling industry, for instance. There's a reason why the casino radio ads seem often to include a hotline number at the end for people who are addicted to gambling because it's so addictive and it ruins lives and it destroys families, just like alcoholism. You have a hotline for people who are addicted to alcohol. You have a hotline for people who are addicted to gambling. And it's destructive because someone gets hooked and the grocery money and the money for the children's clothes and the money for the rent starts to go down the drain and a great wedge is driven into the marriage and there are many griefs. And while I realize that for a gambling addict it may not always be anymore just about the money but rather it becomes an addiction and a compulsion I realize that's true, but the addiction and the compulsion often begins with the love of money and a desire to have it and to have more of it and more of it. And it's just what Paul is saying in these verses. The love of money by itself may not drag people down to the depth simply of its own weight, but it leads to other temptations, verse 9, to other foolish and harmful desires, to other sorts of evil, verse 10, which then plunge men into ruin and destruction. Think about that sad but marvelous song by Jim Croce, The Cats in the Cradle. Do you know that song? It would be worth your time to track it down And listen to it or listen to it again for the haunting way it tells the story about an old man pierced with many griefs. Here is a dad who was not there to watch his son learn to walk, who was not there to play ball with him when he was 10 years old because, quote, there were planes to catch and there were bills to pay. And the process of catching his planes and paying his bills meant that he lost his son. His son grew up just like his dad and couldn't be bothered to visit the old man in his loneliness. And what were those planes and those bills really all about? Well, Croce doesn't say this in the song, but for many a man, the planes and the bills are the love of money and the desire to have more of it, a desire to be rich, or at least to be what we call comfortable, which is really rich, because we're all rich in America. Even if we don't have a job, we have more than most people in the world, or at least many of them. The desire for riches, the desire for comfort, cost this man his son, and there's a trade-off, isn't there? And we might find that it's not worth it. We will find that it is not worth it in the end. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. Be careful of that, fathers. 
And we could give all sorts of other examples, couldn't we, of men and women piercing themselves with many griefs because they loved money. They loved the things that money could buy. Some of those griefs manifest themselves in this life. Some of them will not be known until the judgment, but they are real. Children who raised themselves because mom and dad had to have a certain standard of living that went well beyond what Paul describes in verse 8. Men who sell not only their children, but their dishonesty or their integrity because they're dishonest in order to make a buck. That seems to be the best way to do it, and so they give up their integrity in order to do so. People who began to practice theft and who shatter their reputations and their careers because of it, because they loved money. Unborn babies who are slaughtered and women who spend the rest of their lives burdened with guilt because they snuffed out a life as a mere lifestyle decision. We won't be able to live nearly so comfortably if I have a child right now. And then there are the people in the back room loving money and selling those babies' baby parts, body parts, to make more to put in their own pockets. What's the root of all these various evils and the ruin and destruction they leave in their wake? It's not always this way, but very often the love of money, the love of what money can buy, the desire to be, quote, comfortable is at the root of so many stupid, foolish, destructive, evil decisions and behaviors. And notice that Paul doesn't just say that the love of money can have all sorts of bad earthly consequences, but that it can lead you away from the faith. It can prevent you from coming to Jesus and being saved. That's what he says in verse 10. The love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith. Think about the rich young ruler who would not follow Christ because the monetary cost was more than he was willing to pay. He was not willing to surrender his wealth, and so he turned and walked away from Jesus. Or in the words of Jesus, remember Lot's wife, who even when summoned by the angels of God to avoid hellfire and brimstone, seems not to have been able to bear the thought of leaving her earthly possessions behind, and she looked back and became a pillar of salt. And many is a person who turns back from Jesus, who turns away from the church because it's more important to go make extra money and to produce for myself a certain lifestyle, even if that means I'm no longer free to be in God's house, even if it means I have to break God's commandments to do it. And many are there also who come weekly to God's house, but who love their stuff more than Jesus and who love their lifestyle. They love what money can buy more than they love Jesus and who therefore never actually really embrace him as Lord and King, even though they put on a pretty good face one day in seven. And in the end, their souls are lost as assuredly as Lot's wife. Remember Lot's wife, Jesus said. Whoever seeks to keep his life will lose it. Whoever holds tightly to the things of this earth, the things that cannot come with us beyond the grave, is in danger of losing his soul to the idols of this world's goods. And so, if we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. Why? Because those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction for the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many 
griefs. So there's a second motive for biblical contentment. First, in verse 7, because you can't take your stuff with you anyway. And second, in verses 9 and 10, because of the love of the money, love of money leads to great sorrow in the end. And then there's a third motive for contentment, which Paul mentions in verse 6. And that is that godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. So there's not just this negative motive in verses 9 and 10 about what you lose when you love money, but now there's a positive motive about what you gain when you are content. We're not to use Christianity, verse 5, as a means of getting rich, but there is gain in following Christ if we follow him with a contented heart. And what exactly is that gain? Well, I'm going to come around to that, Lord willing, just a little bit later. But for now, let it suffice to say that we should be motivated to contentment, not only because discontentment and the love of money can take so much away from us, but also because there is real positive gain if we will pursue the Lord and pursue contentment. Store that away in your mind and we'll come back to it. But before we unpack it further, and still under this main heading of contentment, we need also to notice not only the definition of contentment, not only some motives for contentment, but then also some strategies for contentment. Some strategies for contentment. Some things that you can actually do to help yourself be more content. And these are strategies that we can infer from verses 17 and 18. And when I say infer, what I mean is that while verses 17 and 18 were not written directly in order to give us strategies for contentment, nevertheless, if we will follow the instructions that Paul gives here, we'll find these patterns of living draining us of greed and fanning the flames of contentment. So a couple of strategies. First, notice what Paul says In verse 17, instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. The strategy is don't fix your hope on the things of this life. Don't fix your hope on your money, which is uncertain. Fix your hope on God. Now, again, that sounds like what the preacher is supposed to say. It sounds just sort of like a good axiom uh, to put somewhere in your house, to write on your mirror or something like that. But it's not just a nebulous Christian cliche, hope in God, not money. It's an actual strategy for contentment, for being happy in God and not your wealth. There is something that you can do practically here. So what do you do practically? What is Paul saying? I think the way you do it is when a financial need arises in your life, a health need, a car repair, an unexpected high electric bill, the strategy is that you don't hope in money, you hope in God, and what you do is you don't simply open your checkbook or open your online banking app and say to yourself, oh, we have plenty of money. You don't stop there. Now, of course, you have to look at how much money is in the account when it's time to pay a bill. But if that's the only place you look, then you haven't looked deeply enough, according to verse 17. And you may be in the habit of just relying on your bank account, on the uncertainty of riches, rather than relying on your Heavenly Father as your provider. And that's not good. If that's how you function, what will you do when those uncertain riches aren't in the bank account? 
Where will you go then? If your habit is just to open your checkbook and not to turn to God, where will you go when the checkbook has nothing in it? Where will your faith be then if it hasn't been looking directly to God all along? But what if, instead of merely turning to your checkbook when a financial need arises, what if you instead specifically turn to God, thanking Him when there is enough money in the account, praying that there would be when there's not, banking on His promises rather than just your own financial wherewithal? That's what Paul is saying. Don't just open your checkbook. Open your heart to God in prayer and praise and so on. Now, along these lines, the great 19th century preacher Charles Spurgeon wrote a devotional book unfolding various biblical promises, and he entitled it The Checkbook of the Bank of Faith. Some of you may have read it. And the book, by its title and by its contents, is designed to remind us that there is a better reserve to be drawn upon than just our bank accounts. That's why they call it The Checkbook of the bank of faith. In fact, Heritage Press has published it in a binding that reminds us that we have in the promises of God a better bank account from which to draw our confidence. They've made it look like a checkbook. This book is filled with the promises of God to remind us from its accounts of God and His promises and not from our own meager financial resources to draw our confidence. There is a checkbook that you can look to that is uncertain, Paul says in verse 17, but then there is a God and his checkbook and his bank account and his promises that you can turn to that will never let you down. That's a strategy, intentionally turning to God when you're in financial need. That's what verse 17 is all about. Paul is urging us, even when we have money, to draw our confidence from God, who is our provider Not from our rainy day funds, not from our salaries, not from our 401ks, not from our checkbooks. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. So that's one strategy to teach us contentment, namely that we remind ourselves very specifically that it's not our money that will provide the answers, but our God. That will keep us from loving money and from piercing ourselves with many griefs because of it. We'll seek God more than we'll seek money and we'll be content. But then notice the second strategy uh, for contentment that we can infer, infer from verse 18. Namely, that if we will be generous, as Paul commands in that verse, that too will be like a bellows turning up the heat of our contentment in the Lord. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. Now again, Paul's not giving these instructions as a direct teaching on how to be more content, but I am inferring that if you'll do what Paul says here, if you'll be in the habit of giving money away to the missionaries, to the poor, to the pregnancy center, and so on, you'll be a lot less likely to be obsessed with making more money. If you'll give your money away, you'll be a lot less likely to be obsessed with making more money. If you hold loosely to the money that you have, you will be less likely to grasp so strongly for an extra little bit more. Generosity has a marvelous way of setting us free from the love of money and the desire for riches. And therefore, it is like a fresh stream feeding the virtue of contentment. 
And I commend this strategy to you, especially if you struggle with a love for money. Start giving it away, asking God to send your heart out with it and see if it doesn't make you a little less acquisitive and covetous and greedy. So then, we've been thinking about contentment. We've considered it under three categories. The definition of contentment, some motives for contentment, two strategies for contentment, and then before we leave contentment behind, we need to also notice in the fourth place the gain of contentment. The gain of contentment. Paul says in verse 6 that godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. Godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. But what is the gain that Paul is talking about? If godliness is not a strategy for getting rich, what is the gain that comes to us from godliness plus contentment? Well, the answer is not to be rich that we'll be rich in this world. The answer is that we'll have true riches. That's what the rest of this passage shows us. What is the gain of godliness plus contentment? True riches. And remember I told you that that would be our second heading. Godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment, and the gain is what we might call true riches. Now, just saying that godliness plus contentment equals true riches doesn't mean all that much by itself. What are these true riches? What what does this mean? And so the point of this second heading now is to comb back through the passage and to think about what the true riches are that are on offer here to those who pursue God and pursue contentment in him. And there are three items that I think we should notice, and then we'll be finished. The first is that the gain of godliness plus contentment, the true riches that come from pursuing our contentment in the Lord, may well be, in some instances, that we gain our own souls. Our own souls. Do you remember how Paul said in verse 10 that the love of money can cost you your soul? The love of money can cause you to wander away from the faith, to turn back from Jesus before you ever truly embrace him. But what's the converse of that? Well, the converse is not to say that every person who is content with food and covering is going to heaven. It's not to say that you earn heaven by contentment because a Hindu or a pagan or an atheist may well be just as content with these things as a Christian is. So you don't go to heaven by means of contentment. You get to heaven by means of resting in the work of Christ who died for sinners. But what I'm saying is if discontentment can lead you away from Christ, verse 10, then I hope you see what the converse is. Contentment won't save you But it might keep you in church on Sundays instead of off trying to get rich. It might keep you from from forgetting about your need for salvation, which you might well forget if you succeed in your money grab. Contentment, in other words, might keep you from ignoring or forgetting the Jesus to whom you must run for salvation. And so not directly, but indirectly, the gain of contentment may be your own soul. If you throw contentment aside, you may throw your soul aside with it. And some of us need to take that very seriously this morning. Some of us who already find ourselves shirking the things of God in order to do a whole other host of earthly things, or who find ourselves making mincemeat of our consciences in order to keep a job or get a contract. That sort of love of money can desensitize you 
to Christ. And so the best thing that some of us might do right now for the sake of our own souls is to cultivate contentment, to cut off the hand that makes us discontent so that we do not wander away from the faith. Our eternal souls are true riches. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? But then there's another kind of true riches that are spoken about in this final chapter of Timothy in which are tied to our contentment. And that is the true riches, not only of our own souls, but of treasure in heaven. I think that's what Paul is talking about in verses 18 and 19 when he urges us to use our money for good works and to store up the treasure of a good foundation for the future. The treasure of a good foundation for the future. Now, it may sound like he's saying that the good works are the foundation of our salvation, that our good works are what enable us to take hold of eternal life. But given all that he has written elsewhere, he cannot be advocating that our hope of heaven rests on our good works. And yet it can be said, when we use our money to store up treasures in heaven, when we give to the poor, when we support the missionaries, when we support causes of justice like defending the unborn or rescuing rescuing those who are entrapped in human trafficking, when we use our money to store up treasures in heaven, it can be said that those treasures are evidence of our salvation and they do provide us a platform for worshiping Jesus in glory. They provide us with crowns to someday lay at his feet. And so I say to you, treasures in heaven are true riches, far more than any little trinket or grand mansion that you can provide for yourself on earth. To see someone in heaven who is brought to Christ through the church that you financially supported all those years, to see someone in heaven whose mother chose life because you supported the walk for life, coming up next month to see someone in heaven who is rescued out of the sex trade and discipled by a Christian lady missionary whom you supported with your Christmas offering. What is a new smartphone or a larger television or a nicer car in comparison with that? And do you see the connection then between contentment and true riches? If you are content, you will give that money away and store up treasures in heaven. And if you are not, well, you'll probably buy all sorts of jewelry and jacuzzis and whatnot that may be nice in this world, but that you cannot take with you, and you will have very few crowns of rejoicing to cast at Jesus' feet in the great day. The gain of contentment is true riches, and true riches, which contentment helps us to obtain, are first our own souls and then also treasures in heaven. But then before we finish, I want to show you one other jewel in the treasure chest of true riches. One jewel which, like Tolkien's Ark and Stone, surpasses all the other treasures put together. And it is a jewel in this case which is not part of the gain of contentment. This jewel is actually the ultimate ground of our contentment. Godliness coupled with contentment can help us gain our own souls and lay up treasures in heaven, but where does the contentment ultimately come from? What is the one treasure that makes all other treasures pale in comparison? Well, we heard Paul tell us, did we not, in verse 17, instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God. There are earthly riches 
And then there is God. He is the great treasure chest. Why is it that we need not put our hope in riches? Because we have God. And he is our provider. He richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. And so you see, it's not wrong to enjoy all things that God gives us. God richly supplies them. But the real treasure is not the provision, it's the provider. God is our treasure. God, verse 15, who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords. God, verse 16, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light whom no man has seen or can see. Here is our great treasure, the eternal three in one, the God who is holy, 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 the one who parted the Red Sea for the people of old, the one who sent them manna from heaven, the one who became flesh and dwelt among us in the person of Jesus, who was himself the bread that came down out of heaven, the one who fed the 5,000, the one who healed the lepers, the one who befriended the sinners, the one indeed who loved us and gave himself up for us, who spilled his blood on the ground for your salvation and who rose on the third day and who ascended to his Father's right hand, the one who is coming someday on the clouds of heaven and making all things new and who is by his Spirit dwelling within our hearts even today by faith. If we have him, why would we ever put our hope in our flimsy bank accounts? Verse 17. Trust him and not what's in your mobile banking app. Serve Him and not your wealth. Seek Him far above all earthly treasures. Treasure Him and not the pleasures of this world. Hope in Him who is and who has and who supplies all that we need. Love Him who loved you so well at the cross. He, in the person of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is true riches. He is the great treasure. He is the pearl of great value, which, when a man finds Him, is more valuable than everything else he owns. More valuable than the world itself. More valuable than ten million, million worlds. And I hope you have Him today. I hope you have repented of your sins toward Him and placed your faith in Jesus Christ or that you will do that this morning so that you may know what Paul means when he urges us in verse 17 to fix our hope on God.